Welcome to the White Spring Bunker. These halls were built to safeguard some of the most prestigious members of the United States government. Now we are all that remains, though we are always looking for men and women capable of restoring what has been lost. In return, we offer this, our refuge from the world above. Please take your time and look around. Our assets have made great efforts to restore this place to its former glory. Welcome, member, to our little enclave. Welcome back, members. As always, I am the Operative, your designated tour guide and host here at the White Spring. Everything we once knew about Appalachia is being rewritten as the secrets once buried have come into the light. The survivors of the new enclave discover the mole miners aren't who they thought they were, not monsters, but another in a long line of tragedies which have befallen the former residents of the region. Dr. Harefield and Sophia continue their escape from the White Spring, but have they gone from the frying pan into the fire? Modus stands revealed and his plans for Appalachia and his human assets harkens to a much darker vision of the new enclave. Team Cryptid arrives at Monongah Mine, while Lieutenant Jones and Cindy plan to do some exploring of their own to discover how the supermutants invaded Foundation. And Trader Red is ready to start her journey south, and finds that she's more connected to the story of Appalachia than she ever knew. Sergeant Blaine felt as though he was wearing a deep trench in the cavern floor as he paced back and forth, waiting for the colonel to reappear from the building that she had entered. Glancing up to the door, he kept thinking of ways to try to break in and grab the colonel, if things went sideways. Of course, getting out of the cave, surrounded by potentially hostile mo miners, was a different proposition entirely. Sergeant, you okay? Pretty far from okay, Corporal. After what just happened, we should get back to the bunker as soon as possible. I don't trust these mole miners any more than I would trust a super mutant. Uh, no offense, Graham. No worry, Blade Guy. Brothers are very sick. We wish they not kill humans. Trade going to be so hard now. But we see if minor things want to trade too. Well, don't wander off too far there, Graham. Just in case. Me not. Need to check on Charlie. See if any greens here for her to eat. Blaine watched as Graham sauntered off over to where his Brahmin was standing, dipping one head at a time into an old metal bucket of water. Smart super mutants, friendly mole miners. <laughs> it was like the whole damn world's gone crazy. At least we're alive. A lot of our people didn't make it. I just hope Jones and the civilians got away. If anything happened to Eugenie, I don't know what the Colonel would do. I wouldn't even want to guess. Something apocalyptic, I bet. Hey, where did Bitter and Sullivan go? They said they wanted to take a look around. Ah, oh, jeez, what is it with those two? If I didn't know any better, I'd say they're on a lookout for a card game. In a cave full of mole miners? Samantha just shrugged her shoulders and pointed down the rocky path towards a few of the other buildings. Blaine sighed and checked the safety on his pistol. <sighs> just keep an eye on the others, okay? I don't want to lose anyone else down here. Yes, Sergeant. Got it. 
The sergeant picked up his hat from the top of the minigun, made a check of his power armor to make sure it was locked, then walked across the cavern floor to see if he could get eyes on Bitter and Sullivan. He knew the two of them were a little off, but then again they had survived working with Lilith, which was a feat in itself. As he made his way down the lane, he couldn't help but notice the mole miners walking to and fro, not paying him any mind, instead going about their business as if they were just normal settlers in any other settlement in Appalachia. He'd heard all the stories, Welch, Mount Blair, and a host of abandoned mines which mole miners had claimed as their own and attacked anyone who ventured near. But getting a better look at them now, he wasn't fearful, but instead felt a profound sense of sadness. Just what the hell are you? The hooded figures merely walked past him, speaking in whatever gibberish language they used to communicate. As Blaine continued to walk, he caught glimpses of the inside of the mole miners' buildings. Some were converted workshops, while others appeared to be homes. He paused by one open door and glanced inside. The interior was filled with cobbled-together furniture made from scrap and old mining equipment. Along one side of the room was something that caused Blaine to do a double-take. There was an old crib with a makeshift mobile over it, and it was occupied. The gurgling gibberish emanating from the occupant was the same he'd heard from the mole miners, and it brought home that even if they weren't human anymore, it didn't mean that they had lost the important parts of their humanity. Blaine suddenly felt embarrassed that he intruded. He quickly turned to find himself face to face with one of the mole miners. Oh, uh, sorry. Excuse me. <laughs> the squat mole miner looked up at Blaine through its gas mask and thick goggles. The sergeant noticed that some kind of tag was stuck to the side of its hood, covered in dirt and grime, but he could just make out a logo, one that appeared to be a bear. <laughs> the creature said something in its indecipherable language and pushed past Blaine, entering the humble abode and slamming the door behind them. He could hear the baby begin to cry, before cooing again as its obvious parent went to tend to it. Blaine shook his head and then heard a familiar voice coming from down the dirt street. Full house. Beat that. Some bitch. You've got to be kidding me. Are you sure you weren't cheating? Well, he's got you there. I didn't ask your opinion, did I? Ah, don't be a sore loser, Sullivan. Pay the guy. All right, all right. But I'm not done yet. I'll clean these folks out, I'm sure of it. Blaine jogged past two other small houses before turning the corner to find Bitter and Sullivan sitting around an old truck tire serving as a card table, along with three mole miners, surrounded by others watching the game. Bitter! Sullivan! Just what the hell are you doing? Oh hey Sergeant, well me and Bitter were just checking things out when we happened upon our friends here, playing cards. The mole miners all looked up from their cards and gave the Sergeant what he guessed would pass as a wave hello. Well, turns out, poker might just be the universal language. Now, these folks aren't half bad either. And they cheat just as good as Sullivan here. Hey, that's not fair. I just can't read them so well with those masks on. You can understand them? Mostly. Ain't that hard when you know what to listen for, right guys? <laughs> See? He said we're pretty good card players. I really didn't get that. Just takes a little practice and an open mind. Anyways, you're interfering in my quest to get all my caps back. I'm worried about the Colonel and I don't want you just wandering off. If we need to get out of here quickly, I need to know where you are. I don't want to lose anyone else. You need to relax a little, Sergeant. 
The Colonel's fine, and I don't think we have much to worry about down here. Well, and even if we did, there are a few hundred of them and what, like a dozen of us? If they wanted to hurt us, they would have done it already. If it makes you feel any better, we'll be right here. At least until we win all our caps back. Or more likely, they clean us out. <laughs> the sergeant contemplated giving the operatives a direct order to get back to the others, but as he watched them get back to their card game, and the mole miners seemingly invested in it as both Bitter and Sullivan, he figured, what the hell? The worst that could happen is that they got themselves killed, but if that happened, they'd all probably be dead anyway. He was still concerned about the colonel and figured it was time to get back. The sergeant turned to leave, but had gotten a bit turned around. Most of the buildings and streets looked the same in the dim light of the cavern, and he found himself in an area he hadn't seen before. What is this? The street ended near the edge of the cavern wall, but in front of him were several rows of short mounds. Blaine could recognize the cemetery when he saw one. That's a lot of graves. Blaine walked forward and passed between the rows. Some were old, years at least by the looks of it, while the others were fresh, perhaps just days old. The mole miners had erected small headstones made out of scrap metal or wood, with various trinkets placed on the dirt, or tied to the little pieces of metal. A few of them had those same tags he'd seen on the other mole miner. He reached down and took one of them in his hand. This one had been cleaned and the logo was now legible. It was a bear, and Blaine immediately recognized it. He'd seen the same image when he had been with the colonel after a first visit to what had been the Morgantown settlement. He'd seen the same logo writ large against the side of the Arctos Farmer building on their way back to the bunker. What does Arctos Pharma have to do with these mole miners? Sergeant Blaine, come in. Colonel, are you alright? I'm fine, but we have a much larger problem. Get back here as soon as you can. We need to get back to the bunker. Yes, ma'am. And please collect Bitter and Sullivan, too. The time for playing games is over. Of course, ma'am. Over and out. The sergeant put the tag back on the grave and hoped the colonel would be able to explain what the hell was going on. And if they were faced with an even bigger threat, Blaine wanted to make sure he was ready to help face it. We're here. Jenkin like what you see. What? What do you mean? AVR Medical? It ain't there anymore. Dr. Harefield crawled up to the top of a small hill, just down the street from where their scavenger guide said AVR Medical was located. When she peeked over the top, she cursed under her breath. Where the large medical building once stood was now just a pile of rubble. Sophia Daguerre crawled up after the doctor and took a look for herself. That is not good. Not good at all. I know this ain't what you were looking for, but a deal is a deal, right? Yes, a deal is a deal. Here are your caps. The scavenger took the small bag of Nuka-Cola bottle caps and sat down, counting them out one at a time. What do you think happened here? And where is Lilith? I have no idea. What on earth could destroy an entire building? But Lilith? I heard that the Blood Eagles dropped an entire mountain on her and she survived. Maybe she's still alive down there. And just how are we supposed to move tons of rock to find out? Well, what choice do we have? Maybe she got away. Lotus is certainly looking for us by now, and if we're gonna survive and get to Shergrove, 
We are going to need help. Sophia thought for a minute, then nodded in agreement. After her experience at the White Spring, she knew exactly what would happen to her if that damn computer got its virtual hands on her again. But she couldn't help but worry about Andrew. She had the worst feeling that something terrible had happened to him. He had saved her, and she intended to return the favor. But first, they needed to know what Modus was up to. And those answers were in an old government facility currently in the middle of a super mutant invasion. You're right. Let's go. Hey, mind if I tag along? We're not paying extra. Nah, nothing like that. Could be some good scrap down there. Fine with us, I guess. The trio grabbed their respective packs and crested the hill before walking down to the rubble that used to be ABR Medical. As Dr. Harefield looked around, she tried to get a sense of what might have happened. Despite there being several other buildings in close proximity, none of them looked recently damaged. Whatever had happened, had happened just to the medical building, which was strange in itself. As they got closer, she also noticed that the building hadn't exploded or thrown debris. It appeared to have collapsed in on itself, like it suffered a controlled demolition. I don't like it. Not one bit. Me either. The scavenger just smiled. He could already see bits and pieces of medical equipment in the ruins. He ran ahead and settled next to a small pile of broken concrete, pulling on the arm of an old x-ray machine, half buried in the rubble. Looks like it's my lucky day. Hey, be careful! That equipment could be dangerous! Says you. The scavenger's head exploded like a ripe melon as the sound of a gunshot echoed across the ruins. Sophia shoved Dr. Harefield behind a wrecked ambulance as a second shot chewed up the asphalt where the two had just been standing. Where did that shot come from? I don't know. The doctor pulled out her pistol while Sophia unslung the old combat rifle from her back. Harefield peeked around the corner of the ambulance, only to flinch backwards as another shot ricocheted off the side of the vehicle. We're in a bad spot. We need to get under better cover. Harefield looked around and saw a viable path around the side of the rubble, which led down towards old Charleston. All right. I'm going to see if I can distract whoever is shooting at us. When I fire, you run around that rubble and head towards the city. I'll be right behind you. Sophia didn't like it, but they didn't have a lot of options either. She nodded and watched the doctor head to the opposite side of the vehicle. When she put her head out again, there was another shot, hitting just inches away from the doctor's head. But instead of flinching, Harefield aimed in the general direction of the shot and pulled the trigger several times. Hearing that, Sophia ran in the opposite direction, skirting a large pile of rubble. She was running full speed around another corner when she caught sight of a creature in front of her. Startled, Sophia slipped and fell, her rifle flying from her hands and landing several feet away, just out of reach. Dr. Harefield fired two more shots before running after the former astronaut. Her blood turned cold when she heard the howl of a mutant hound from her front, and when she turned the corner to find Sophia cornered by a pair of the enormous beasts, each of them looked like they were about to eat her. The doctor raised her pistol to fire when she heard a loud whistle, and the two hounds quickly turned and bounded up next to someone standing on the rubble pile. Girls, 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 what did I tell you about scaring people? Standing atop the pile, Lilith wagged her finger at her two mutant hound pets. Lilith? The one and only. I'm sorry my puppies gave you such a fright. Puppies? They're monsters. That too. But they're my monsters. Lilith, we've been looking for you. What happened here? Someone tried to kill me. That was such an awful mistake. Stole all my research, too. Went to try to find them, but found you first. Why aren't you at the bunker? You know it's not safe out here. The bunker isn't safe either. 
Now what do you mean by that? Val spends way too much time worrying about what other people are doing to let anything happen. It's a long story, Lilith, but first we need to get out of here. Someone is trying to kill us. I'm not trying to kill you, Doctor. At least not yet. Shadow. The nearly seven-foot-tall shadow seemingly appeared out of nowhere, a sniper rifle slung over his shoulder. He was still sporting a black eye from his last encounter with Sophia and Dr. Harefield. Oh, goody. Daniel, we should have known it was you. I'll forgive the insult just this once. Modus wants the astronaut. If she comes quietly, I might let you live. Maybe if I go with him. No way, no how. You're going to kill us anyway. That much is obvious. We can do this the easy way or the hard way. In either case, I win. Oh, I do prefer the hard way. I never liked you, Shadow. You always smelled funny. This isn't your concern, Lilith. But it sounds like so much fun. And I've been so bored. Shadow just smiled and pulled out a long, wicked-looking bowie knife, the steel flashing in the afternoon light. Can't say I haven't been looking forward to this, Lilith. Lilith pulled out her own blade, the same one she'd carved directly from the claw of the Scorchbeast Queen. When this is over, Shadow, if you can still talk, that is, you and I are going to have a little conversation about what's been going on. Doctor, Sophia... You might want to back up. This is going to get messy. Dr. Harefield and Sophia took several steps back to get out of the line of fire, while Lilith's pet mutant hounds sat back on their haunches, waiting for instructions from their mother. Both Lilith and Shadow dropped into their fighting stances, slowly circling each other. The big man towered over Lilith, who merely stuck out her tongue at him. Shadow lunged forward, and the sound of steel on sharpened bone echoed across the ruins of Charleston. Oh no. What is it, Andy? The bad man. What's the bad man doing? Do we need to hide again? We're safe here, but it's not safe out there. The bad man. He's hurting people. Then we have to do something. We have to stop it. We tried that once. Once? And what happened? You really don't remember, do you? Remember? Remember what? Andy. Tell me what happened, please. You became the bad man. Reynolds. Yes, Major? The processing of civilians is behind schedule. We've encountered some... Difficulties. Resistance? Of a sort. Explain. Well, several individuals on our list are missing, and the others are reluctant to reveal where they went. I didn't want to proceed until we could locate them. And you have searched the ground? Of course. I thought you might have some insight as to how they could have escaped or where they might be. Even we can't be everywhere, Reynolds. I'll talk to them again. 
We'll be back on schedule. I promise. Then see to it, Colonel. Our patience is not infinite. Stein stared at Reynolds for a moment before turning and striding back down the stairs and out of operations. A bead of sweat trickled down the side of Reynolds' face as he tried and failed to slow his racing heart. It's better to be the right hand of the devil, right? Reynolds nearly tripped over his own feet as he made his way to his new office. He took one last look back at the operations room. The operatives were all heads down at their terminals, slowly focused on the tasks that Modus had assigned to them. Each and every one of them had gone through Somnus processing, and even as Reynolds was their new commanding officer, he knew his orders only carried as much weight as Modus allowed. His new office was the colonel's old one. It was much as she left it, as she led her doomed expedition to Emmett Mountain. The old U.S. flag still flew across the wall behind the desk, but the other personal effects had been collected and stuffed into boxes against the opposite wall. Reynolds flopped into the chair and took off his cap, placing it on the desk. He took out a handkerchief and wiped the sweat from his brow before opening the desk drawer and taking out a syringe filled with a double dose of Daddio. With a practiced hand, Reynolds slipped the needle into his arm and sighed deeply as the drug entered his system. He had fallen deeper and deeper into his addiction, as much as he had thought his bargain with Modus would protect him from the colonel's wrath. Reynolds felt that he was no safer, if not even in greater danger, having seen what Modus intended for the future. He was now in a trap of his own making, and all he could do was survive until the next day. The drugs finally pushed his fear to the back of his mind and soothed his shattered nerves. Now he had to figure out how to convince the lambs to go to the slaughter. Reynolds opened his terminal and pulled up the Somnus list, and as he perused the names, he settled on one. Jennifer Marshall. The teacher had been a thorn in his side. She had been the first to notice when residents had gone missing. Modus had required subjects for testing, and the residents of Refugee Row had been his guinea pigs. Reynolds had done his best, but with each failed iteration, Modus needed more fresh bodies to refine the Somnus programming. When Jennifer had cornered Reynolds in the hotel, accusing him of being party to the missing residents, he had to do something to prevent her from creating a scene. He hadn't meant to hit her. It wasn't his fault, just like Flatwoods wasn't his fault. Not really. She just had to put her nose where it didn't belong. Maybe she's ready to play ball. Much to Reynolds' surprise, Modus had declined to add Jennifer to the processing list, something to do with some abnormality the AI discovered during a medical scan. The explanation was far beyond anything Reynolds could understand, but it still left them with a problem. I guess we could have just killed her, but what a waste. Instead, for whatever reason, Reynolds had convinced Modus to put her in a holding cell. Getting there hadn't been easy, and she damaged at least two projectrons. He had hoped that her time in the cell had given her a different perspective. Reynolds typed a command into the command terminal and pulled up a security camera covering Jennifer's cell. The young woman was sitting on a small cot, reading an old magazine. She noticed the camera turn in her direction, and she looked up and scowled, extending her middle finger and mouthing a variety of curse words. Still fiery. Let's see if she can be reasonable. Hmm. I have an idea. Modus? Yes, Colonel? I'd like to secure one of the residents for a conversation. Who is the target? Pauline Harvey, teacher. Searching. Searching. Target identified. Assaultron B-23C, dispatched. It would be best not to injure her, Modus. We will try. Thank you. Bring her to the holding cell, please. What is your 
intent. I'm going to make a deal, Modus. Do not fail us, Reynolds. Reynolds turned off the terminal and placed his cap back on his head. One way or the other, Jennifer would cooperate. And if things got messy, well, Reynolds had experience with that, too. Serve and protect. Once upon a time, 27 years after the bombs fell, there were two people, a vault dweller and a California girl. They met and sparks flew. That's when things got interesting. Once Upon a Wasteland is their story. Follow Elizabeth Kirby and Odessa Valdez as they pursue their happily ever after in the post-apocalyptic Appalachian wasteland of Fallout 76. Available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and many other podcasting platforms. Once Upon a Wasteland, a Fallout 76 love story. Available now. After the battle against the Super Mutants, Amanda had declared the basement of Spruce Knob off-limits until they got a better handle on what had happened and how to prevent another attack. The technical and research spaces, along with the medical spaces and Paige's office, had all been wrecked by the fighting anyway, so there was little of value left for anyone to risk their lives over. However, two individuals carefully threaded through the rubble weren't looking for salvage. They were looking for answers. The flashlights from one's pit boy led the way. And you say the drill just came right out of the ground? This thing was huge. Bigger than anything I ever saw in any of our geology textbooks in the vault. Carrying super mutants? Since when do drills of any size carry passengers? I know it sounds crazy. After what I've experienced over the last few weeks, nothing sounds crazy anymore. Maybe if we find out where it came from, we can start getting some idea of what is really going on around here. I feel bad sneaking around like this. Amanda is not going to be happy. She's got a lot on her plate. For a raider, she isn't half bad. Former raider, thank you very much. She's really amazing once you get to know her. Sorry, I didn't mean... Jones, it's okay. It's just... Well, she means a lot to me. Which is why you can still back out. I don't want you to get in trouble either. I'm still an officer of the new Enclave, Jones. If I can help the Colonel, then it's my duty. Amanda will understand. Understand what, baby doll? Amanda! Where did you come from? This former raider still has plenty of tricks up her sleeve. Amanda, it's not Cindy's fault. I made her come. You are a terrible liar, Jones. It's not like I wasn't over here listening to your whole conversation. I swear, if you're not more careful on your little expedition, you will get killed, and then I will be really mad. Our expedition? You're letting me go? Baby doll, I don't own you. And the thought of losing you tears my guts out, but damn if you haven't rubbed off on me too. We all gotta do the right thing, and now it means getting to the bottom of this damn mystery. Thank you, Amanda. Don't thank me yet. 
because if one hair on Cindy's head gets hurt, I'm going to find you and show you exactly what I used to do before I was a former raider. Amanda. I had a crew move some of the rubble, and there's some kind of tunnel down there. It's been all quiet, and just to be on the safe side, I rigged explosives to bring down a good 100-foot section if I even think something's coming back up. Here, take these packs. What's in here? More supplies, ammunition, and a homing beacon. I stole it, I mean, I borrowed it uh, from Ward. He's been putting them on his easy-to-lose shit, so I'm putting one on you two. It's got one hell of a range, and if you activate it, we can find you. Oh, and a couple of gas masks as well. We have no idea what's down there, so it pays to be prepared. Amanda, I was so afraid you'd hate me for leaving. Baby doll, I can't imagine you doing anything to make me hate you. But you better not die on me. Amanda stepped up and took Cindy in a bear hug before leaning back and kissing her. And I love you, baby doll. Now, get going before I change my mind. I love you too, Amanda. And I promise, I'll be back. We owe you one, Amanda. If we find anything at all, we'll activate the beacon and try to get back here as quickly as we can. But... I'll come to you and see if we can't meet in the middle. This is all batshit crazy. But what else are we going to do? Wait for those super mutants to come back and eat us? I don't think so. On rare occasions, right and smart turn out to be the same thing. Jones held out his hand and Amanda smiled, taking a firm grip. There wasn't much else to be said between the three of them. Amanda hugged Cindy again before leading them back over to the pile of rubble in the middle of the cavern. True to her word, there was a cleared space, about ten feet across, with several ropes tied to rocks and disappearing down into the darkness. How far down does it go? It's about forty feet to the bottom, give or take. The tunnel goes south, though I'm not sure how far. I wasn't going to let anyone get out of radio range, but the scout swore he saw at least one side tunnel further along. Oh, and one last thing. I found a couple cans of luminescent paint. Think of it as leaving breadcrumbs. Thanks again, Amanda. Cindy and Jones took hold of the ropes and slowly lowered themselves down into the hole. Using their Pip-Boy flashlights, they found themselves in a wide circular tunnel, with the floor barely visible below them. When they finally reached the bottom, Cindy did a quick circuit of the area, scanning the floor and walls with her flashlight. Jones, take a look at these marks. Whoa, those are some big treads. Like I said, it was huge. All right, something like that doesn't just come from nowhere. Let's see what we can find. Both Jones and Cindy checked their weapons before slowly proceeding down the tunnel. The floor sloped down as they walked further south, taking them deeper into the bowels of Appalachia. Above, Amanda watched as the light slowly disappeared into the darkness. She instantly regretted letting them go, even though she knew it was the right thing to do. There was an entire settlement of people above that she had sworn to protect, and if Jones and Cindy were able to find out where those damn super mutants had come from, it might just help in stopping them for good. That didn't mean she had to like it. You better come back, baby doll, because I'll tear Appalachia apart if you don't. The old Atlas Observatory was a beehive of activity. 
power armor clad members of the first expeditionary force of the Brotherhood of Steel stood guard on the newly built barricades and ramparts covering the roads leading up to the newly renamed Fort Atlas. Squires and initiates continued to move supplies and assist the construction bots in turning the facility into a well-fortified base of operations for the Brotherhood, under the watchful eyes of Knight Shin, who was quick to correct faulty placement or poor fire lanes. Inside Fort Atlas, Scribe Odessa Valdez had been busy cataloging pre-war technology left behind and digging through old files detailing the wide variety of experiments conducted by the old staff, including the Atmospheric Terraforming Laser Accelerator System, a well-funded Department of Defense program to control the weather. The scribe operated under standing orders from Elder Maxim himself to secure and protect technology for the rebuilding of society in the future. That stance was a source of contention amongst the elders, many of whom believed to protect any future society, technology should be strictly controlled rather than freely given to people to rebuild. That schism was on full display within the leadership of the expeditionary force. Paladin Romani firmly believed in helping the survivors of post-war America, while Knight Shin was in the camp of protecting the people from themselves. Of course, that mission was further complicated by the current situation in Appalachia. Given the current situation, we need to continue to fortify our position, then find a way to contact the Elders. Everything else should be secondary. Shin, we are still working with very little information on what is truly going on here. Until we do, contacting the Elders will have to wait. Paladin, that is unacceptable. Your disregard of our communications protocol during our march has raised concerns back at Lost Hills, I'm certain. Again, Shin, the situation has changed. If what our guests have told us is true, and I have no reason not to believe them, we are facing an even graver threat than we realized. All the more reason to contact the Elders. If our orders are no longer valid, then we need to brief them on the situation and ask for new ones. The entire region is under a communications blackout, Nightshin. How can we be expected to contact Lost Hills if we can't even talk to each other? That's your problem, scribe, not mine. Enough, Knight. Healthy debate is encouraged, but we are all in this together. You will apologize to the scribe. Now. I apologize, scribe. The last few weeks have been trying. Apology accepted, Knight. And we are attempting to understand where this interference is coming from. While I haven't been able to pinpoint a source, it appears to be artificial in nature. Artificial? Man-made? We haven't been able to rule anything out just yet, Paladin. Our guests have provided some information we need to follow up on, but nothing I would call concrete. I found their information enlightening, Scribe, and I have no reason to believe they are lying to us either. If I had been allowed to interrogate them, we would know for sure. They are civilians, Knight, and we will treat them with dignity and respect. As you say, Paladin. These are unusual times, even more so than we ever expected. These supermutants are a threat of the highest order. Knight Shin, I want you to gather as much intelligence as you are able and be prepared to engage them if necessary. Of course, Paladin. We're already working on operational plans to secure an expanded perimeter around Fort Atlas. Very good. Scribe Valdez, continue your work on identifying the source of the radio interference. I'd also like an update on what you found here as well. Yes, Paladin. We've uncovered some very interesting technology. Our sources were correct. Atlas was no mere observatory. I look forward to hearing more, Scribe. All right. We still have so much work to do. I'll expect updates first thing in the morning. Thank you both.
Ad Victorium. Ad Victorium, Paladin. I said Ad Victorium, Knight. Ad Victorium. Knight Shin left the briefing room, his perpetual scowl still on his face. After his departure, Scribe Valdez lingered in the doorway. Scribe? We found something in the basement you need to see. You know how busy we are. Couldn't you just include it in your report? One of our initiates stumbled upon something very unusual. My cursory examination revealed some disturbing aspects of the discovery, including details mentioned in Scribe McNamara's report on the Scorched. The Scorched? But all our intelligence says they are no longer a threat. Not the Scorched themselves. It's hard to explain. I'd rather show you. All right, Scribe, I've learned to trust your instincts. Lead the way. Scribe Valdez escorted Paladin and Romani down the stairs onto the main floor of the observatory, past the large telescope and boxes lining the walls to the basement access staircase. Walking down the stairs to the sublevel, the two Brotherhood members entered the observatory power plant with a fusion generator in one corner. There were several tables in the middle of the room surrounded by light areas on the floor, like pieces of equipment that had been positioned there but were now gone. On one of the tables was something covered in an old fabric tarp. I had the initiates map the sub-basement area and tag items of interest. They hadn't uncovered anything unusual until they got here. What did they find? The scribe walked over to the middle of the table and removed the tarp, revealing an item about the size of a red box, but it was highlighted by a bright purple glow. What on earth is that? An ultrasight battery. And it shouldn't exist. Ultrasight? Wait, Scribe Takano mentioned ultrasight, didn't she? Correct. Before the war, Atomic Mining Services discovered ultrasight veins running underneath Appalachia. It is highly radioactive, unstable, and was viewed as a game-changing energy source. Unfortunately, the war put an end to that, but then it was rediscovered when Scribe Grant McNamara started studying the scorched. Ultrasight caused the scorched? Not directly. The Scorched were infected with some kind of virus, but it had been mutated and enhanced by exposure to large amounts of ultrasight radiation. We lost contact with Appalachia before we could identify the source of the Scorched Plague, but our guests filled in the gaps. The Scorched Beast Queen. Exactly. But that's a different story. This is something else entirely, and as I said, it shouldn't exist. Could it have been a pre-war experiment? That's what I thought at first, but this battery was manufactured last year. What? How is that possible? It's date-stamped, from last December. Under that is a batch number. This was battery 25 of 30. I don't know why this one was left behind, but I found a manifest of equipment like a checklist, radiation scrubbers, ore processing modules, and precision assembly machines. Everything one would need to refine raw ultrasight and build these batteries. Where did it all go? No idea, Paladin. But everything was packed up and moved from this location. Besides the battery and scrap paperwork, it's a complete mystery to me. However, if someone discovered a way to mass-produce ultrasight batteries, what else might they be doing with it? By all accounts, it's extremely dangerous. It appears our new home has even more mysteries than we first realized. You were right to bring this to my attention. Please see what else you can find out 
along with also trying to uncover the source of the radio interference. Of course, Paladin. And keep this latest discovery between us for the moment. Night Shin has enough on his mind right now. This might only create more confusion. I understand, Paladin. Paladin Romani saluted and went back upstairs. The more she thought about what she'd learned since they crossed the mountains into Appalachia, the more concerned she became. They had anticipated a worst-case scenario, one involving a seminium quantity which was the scorched. Now she was facing something else entirely, but perhaps a worst-case scenario of its own. She was going to head back to her office, but instead she changed her mind. She went over to the temporary guest quarters, waving away the squire who was standing guard by the door. Opening it, she found her guests sitting around a small table. Overseer, Mr. Day, we need to talk. I have some more questions about the White Spring. Hi, everyone. I'm Chris. And I'm not! We're not doing that routine right now. We're trying to do an advertisement. Oh, fine! I'm Sir Aloysius Pernicious, the better half of the team at One Wall Comedy! Okay, I wouldn't go that far. Anyway, come check us out on YouTube. We're your number one source for independent sketch comedy on the internet. Yeah, because that's such a big market. All right, come on. Let's get out of here. I'm getting paid for this, right? Don't push your luck. No, that will be all. You may leave. If only they all could be so docile. But that won't matter for much longer. Ah, General, it's good to see you. To what do I owe the pleasure of your visit? We've just received news of one of our sources. Survivors from Emmett Mountain have made contact with the Resistance. Are you certain of that? It's been confirmed. That is unfortunate. Have we been able to ascertain their location? Grey Nine is currently investigating. We also believe that the one referred to as the Colonel is among the survivors. Well, that is interesting. She does appear to have nine lives now, doesn't she? She has developed a certain... reputation. Do I detect a hint of jealousy, General? She has been lucky, I will give you that. However, she is still a child. This child, as you say, killed the Scorch Beast Queen and destroyed our imposter Sheep Squatch. She was also responsible for several diplomatic efforts across the region, which I found to be both innovative and effective. That may be the case, Director, but it also means that she's extremely dangerous and a threat. I was hoping the trap at Emmett Mountain would have eliminated the White Spring Force entirely. The Council agrees with your assessment, General. However, I have a slightly different outlook. One must prepare for the unexpected, and if this Colonel was once again able to survive, 
and also inflict the kind of losses our test subjects experienced, even among the new behemoths, then she could be an asset to our cause. An asset? I don't see how. You lack vision, General. Now see here, Director. My apologies, General. I did not mean that as an insult. However, where you see a threat, I see potential. If we were able to convince the Colonel to join our cause, not only would this add an extremely capable asset to our ledger, but it would also give us direct access to the AI. Modus, Director? Yes. The Council has been examining ways to approach it to discuss a mutually beneficial arrangement, but they have been unable to find a suitably controlled means of communication. I am beginning to see your logic, Director. I am pleased. While I will take this up with the Council directly, I anticipate they will agree with my assessment. If Grey Nine successfully locates the survivors, and the Colonel is truly among them, she is to be taken into custody. And the others? They are pawns to be sacrificed, General. And if you uncover any resistance nests, our pacification squads can deal with them. Of course, Director. Have you also been updated regarding the arrival of the Brotherhood of Steel at the Atlas Observatory? I am aware, General. That is why I've asked that our communication disruption efforts be extended. We are still evaluating the threat they may pose, and their attempted interference in our FEV recovery efforts appears to be no mere coincidence. Should we begin direct action against them? The Council has not agreed on a course of action. We, of course, will defend ourselves if necessary, but our resources are better directed at completing Project Onai. I have recommended that we continue our observations of their activities. I'd still like permission to plan a contingency operation. I could have a mother load in position within just a few days. You may plan, General, but my grandfather's inventions are not toys for your amusement. Unless the Council says otherwise, you will wait on my order. Do you understand? Yes, Director. And I'll wait word from Grey Nine. Remember, General, she is to be taken alive. Is that clear? Crystal clear, Director. The General saluted and left the Director's office. She smirked and returned to her notes. In her opinion, the General was a relic of the past. While he was smart enough to cast his lot with the Pact when his Marine unit lost contact with its headquarters after the nuclear exchange, he lacked the true vision necessary to lead humanity into its future. He was still useful, however, and as her grandfather would always say, Waste not, want not. She put down her pen and reached over, grabbing a small picture frame. The photograph was very old, taken just after the war. It showed an impromptu family portrait, with Daniel Hornwright and his daughter Penelope, and their son-in-law Bryce Garahan. And in Penelope's arms was a baby. That baby was her. She had been named after her grandmother, Evelyn Hornwright, who had died several years before the war. Her grandfather had always told the same story of their journey to join the Pact. They had survived in the family safe room under their estate until they received a mysterious transmission asking them to come to one of the local vaults. At first they had been suspicious until her grandfather recognized one of the voices, an old political friend. They made the trek southwest with a few other estate staff who had survived along with them. When they reached the vault, there had been an accident and her mother had died. 
She had grown up in the vault, formerly known as Vault 63, but now the center of the pack's operations in Appalachia. The council had recognized her intelligence at an early age, and she had followed in her mother's footsteps into the hard sciences. Even as events spun out of control above ground, with the rise of the Scorched and the eradication of all human life in Appalachia, she had worked hard, overcoming the death of her father from ultracite poisoning while attempting to turn the radioactive material into a viable power source. I don't know what I would have done without Grandfather. Her grandfather was her rock, helping her overcome her grief and teaching her everything he knew, including the secrets of the Motherlode, the giant automated drilling machines he had built before the war. Not even her mother, Penelope, had been privy to the fact that Hornwright Industries had constructed nearly a dozen of the giant drills. Now they were the backbone of the Pax Construction Corps. The Motherlodes helped expand their facilities across subterranean Appalachia, and also provided transportation services for their pacification and surveillance teams, keeping tabs on the world above, along with hunting down rogue deltas. It had been that contribution, along with her innate intelligence and loyalty which had earned her the position of Director of All Pact Research. Evelyn had been proud that her grandfather lived to see her achieve such a prominent position, but also sad that he had passed away soon after. I will make you proud. I promise. Evelyn put the picture back down and wiped a tear from her eye. The pact required great sacrifice, but with the promise of a new future, free of conflict, free of the failings of the old governments, and free from the ungrateful masses, she would help lead the elite of humanity into a golden age, powered by the wonders of Ultrasite and cleansed by the armies of Project Onai. Ah, that did remind her of one final detail. She toggled the intercom on her desk. Dr. Blackburn. Yes, Director. What is the status of the viral recombination? Dr. Trillian is finalizing the first test batch. We have already selected an appropriate specimen for validation. Excellent. We may also have a guest arriving in the near future. I would like you to be available for a tour of our research facility. That is highly unusual, Director. However, if you feel it necessary... I do, Doctor. Please keep me up to date on your progress. The Council expects results, as do I. We are closer to our goal than ever before. Of course, Director. Director Evelyn Hornray clicked off the intercom and looked back at her notes. Dr. Blackburn had exceeded even her lofty expectations, despite his prickly demeanor. Now she needed to check in on Team Charlie. The RoboBrain interface prototypes were falling behind schedule. Perhaps a personal visit would help them get back on the correct path. She wrote a quick note for herself for tomorrow, then slid the papers back into her desk. She had to prepare for the evening's meeting with the council. After years of waiting, they were finally on the cusp of victory. Hi, I'm Firewriter, and I'm the host of The Pixel People, a podcast dedicated to taking a close look at our favorite characters from our favorite video games. From major characters who define the course of a game's storyline, to smaller characters who you might have never noticed. Every week, we go beyond the quest line to examine a particular character's story arc and choices, and discover the real-world parallels and life lessons hidden just below the surface. I hope you'll join us. You can find the Pixel People on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, 
and everywhere else you listen to podcasts. The old mines of Monaga had been burrowed directly into the sides of the mountain overlooking the town. Three times a day before the war, miners made their way up the roads and trails to work their shifts until Horonite Industries swooped in and replaced them all with auto miner bots. Now, over 30 years later, it was Team Cryptid following in their footsteps. Thomas and Skinner, come in. Over. This is Skinner. Go ahead. It's clear all the way to the top. We found some unusual tracks, but can't tell you how old they are. They also don't seem to go anywhere in particular. All right, take some pictures of them just in case. We'll be along shortly. Understood. There are about half a dozen mine entrances up here. Most of them appear to be collapsed, but Private Basil may have found the main shaft. It looks open. Should be able to confirm by the time you get here. Over now. Skinner put his radio away and looked back down the trail as the rest of Team Cryptid slowly made their way up the steep slope. The well-worn path wasn't too difficult to traverse, but they were all carrying heavy packs of scientific equipment, which slowed them down. Surprisingly, it was Douglas that required the most rest stops along the way, with Emily gently chiding him every time he called for a break. Silver Shroud never had to carry any of his own damn stuff. We're almost to the top, Douglas. You don't see me complaining, do you? But I'm carrying three multiscopes, and uh, why the heck did we need three anyway? Redundancy, Douglas. You never know when you're going to lose one, or have one of them break. Who are you, what? Ward from Foundation? You know the Colonel would skin us alive if we lost any bit of equipment, right? You'll have plenty of time to rest when we get the base camp set up. We're gonna need plenty of daylight, and I don't want to waste any of it. Alright, alright. But, I swear... Next time, let someone else carry the multiscopes. Skinner chuckled as they watched Douglas tighten the straps of his pack and curse under his breath, something about the silver shroud never having to carry his own stuff before continuing up the trail. The captain kept a close watch on the surrounding hills. While Team Sigma hadn't found any evidence of super mutant activity in the area, that didn't mean a war party or packs of mutant hounds might not appear at any moment. And with their communications still cut off, it meant they were truly on their own at least until they were able to find a way to return to Vault Town. When they reached the top of the ridge, Skinner finally got a good look at the Monaga Mines. Not much to look at, are they? This is it. I guess I was expecting something... more impressive. Well, they are underground, you know. Don't be a smart-ass, Douglas. That's not what I meant. Douglas just winked and smiled. As much as she had given him a hard time, turnabout was fair play. Though Douglas could see her point. There were a couple of old trailers set around a long, corrugated metal building set against the side of the mountain. There were signs posted everywhere warning people away, that the mine was closed, and to watch for rockfalls. Captain Thomas walked out of the building, rifle slung over his shoulder. Thomas, find anything interesting? The main shaft is open. Sort of. Sort of? The entrance collapsed. Probably sometime after the town decided to close up the mine for good, before the war. But someone went digging. Didn't clear it all, not by a long shot. But there is a crawl space, embraced too. Can't vouch how safe it is, but it looks like we can access the mine from here. 
let's not get ahead of ourselves. I want to set up our instruments and do a thorough investigation of the area first. Have our team sweep the area again and tag the other entrances. Douglas! Yes, sir? Check out those trailers. We need space for both us and the equipment. I want to be up and operational by noon. Got it? You got it, sir. Team Cryptid got busy unloading their various instruments and recording equipment, as well as building a rudimentary base camp for sleeping and eating. Skinner took the opportunity to walk around the main area. The decayed remains of the mining operation littered the site. An excavator sat on its side, partially crushed by a large boulder, while shovels and wheelbarrows lay scattered on the ground. A large rusted truck sat in between the trailers, sitting on its rims as the rubber wheels had rotted away. As Skinner walked over, he could see a skeleton hanging half in and half out of the cab. Poor bastard. The remains of the dead were still commonplace in Appalachia, leftovers from the days the bombs dropped, or from the unrest that occurred after. Skinner, over here. The captain turned away from the truck and found Thomas picking over the remains of several tents. What did you find, Thomas? This is where Earl Williams and his crew rape camp. I found another journal. They spent a few days digging their way through the entrance. Sounds like it wasn't easy work either. A couple of the crew disappeared during the first night. Earl figured they'd just ran off. Last entry has them all heading into the mines. Anything else? Nothing. Looks like they never came. Shit. That's not a lot to go on. It isn't. All right. I'll get one of my team over here. See if Earl left anything behind. Thomas just nodded and knelt down again, picking through the food scraps and debris. Skinner went back to the trailers to find Team Cryptid setting up their mobile terminals and laying out sleeping bags off to the side. Emily, we found Earl's camp over on the other side of the truck. I don't know if there's anything of interest left, but give it a thorough once-over. Sure thing, Captain. Skinner didn't expect much, but something about the entire place made him uneasy. Coupled with the strange earthquake the night before, he suspected that there was more to Monaga than just mere stories. However, they were scientists first, and they needed evidence before they could do anything. The rest of the day was taken up by the camp and technical work. Thomas's team mapped the rest of the entrances to the mine they could find, using old maps they found at the town, but all of them had collapsed, blocked by tons of rubble. Emily set up a seismic monitoring station near the main entrance, along with several others to serve to triangulate the location of any tremors they might detect. Douglas spent the latter part of the afternoon reading the final journal of Earl Williams, before Team Cryptid gathered together with Team Sigma for a briefing. All right, team. Now the real fun begins. <laughs> but seriously, our missions are never normal. But this is different. We're isolated, without communications with command. If something does go wrong, we have to rely on each other. But always remember, we are Team Cryptid. Weird is what we do. <laughs> so... Our priority is to complete our investigation of the area. If we find nothing, that means there is nothing to find. I don't know exactly how long we have, but we don't cut corners. When do we head into the mine? Patience, Douglas. Let's get our bearings up here before we send anyone down there. And remember, if our information is accurate, several folks have already gone missing. Shucks. But when the time comes, you can go first, Douglas. Really? No, not really. Though, if you got eaten by a monster, it would liven up my report to the Colonel. <laughs> Collect any and all data you can from the area. Emily, keep a close eye on those seismic detectors. Thomas, your team is area defense, just in case. 
though I want you to put a rotating guard around that mine entrance. No problem, Skinner. You all know your job, so let's get to it. We break for food at 1700, and we'll be working shifts overnight. We reevaluate everything in the morning. Got it? Team Cryptid all responded in the affirmative, and everyone headed off to their assignments. Skinner was still unnerved by the eerie silence that surrounded the Monaga mine. Even the wind whistling down the mountain sounded muted, even as his footsteps echoed hollowly as he walked the perimeter. He shook his head and went back over to the mine entrance. Corporal Nash stood by the opening in the rock slide and saluted as the captain walked over. The hole was about six feet tall by four feet wide. The picks and shovels Earl's crew had used to get through the rock were still lying where they had been dropped. Shining his flashlight into the darkness, Skinner couldn't see a thing. The hole appeared to go on forever, the light vanishing into the blackness beyond. Listening carefully, he thought he could hear something, very distant and indistinct. Corporal, have you heard or seen anything since you come on duty? No, sir. It's been quiet as a tomb. All right, just be careful. We still don't know what we're dealing with. Yes, sir. Captain Thomas made it clear that we weren't, in his words, to do anything brave or stupid or both. Great minds think alike. And I'd say those are words to live by, Corporal. Skinner took one last look at the hole before saluting and leaving the Corporal to stand guard. Back at the trailer, Emily was typing furiously at a terminal. She was trying to pin down the source of a series of micro-tremors coming from inside the mountain. There didn't seem to be any discernible pattern, other than that they seemed to be centrally located several hundred feet beneath the entrance to the mine. Very strange. Very strange indeed. Could the mine be settling? I am attempting to compensate for standard deviations, Douglas. This isn't one of your unstoppable comic books. I can't wave the Silver Shroud's magic wand and make the data make sense. That's the inspector. She uses magic, not the Silver Shroud. You are incorrigible, Douglas. Douglas went back to reading her William's journal, while Emily took off her glasses and rubbed her eyes. She was sure she knew what regular tremors looked like, and these were not them. However, whatever the cause of these strange readings were either not close enough or not big enough to get a clear signal. Worse, the signals weren't even constant. They would start, then stop, then start again, randomly. There wasn't much more she could do, unless they got closer or the signal increased in size, neither of which seemed likely at this point. As night fell, the team ate and talked amongst themselves. Skinner tried the radio again, only to find the same interference they'd experienced in the past. Same. <sighs> Unfortunately, yes. Not good. Not good at all. I'm going to start scouting the route to the vault town tomorrow. Any objections? None. I'd hate to cut things short, especially if there is something here. But we could have much bigger problems coming. We'll take a quick peek in the hole tomorrow and take a look around, and start packing up. Agreed? Technically, you're the boss. And you're our shield. Works for me. Hopefully Team Artemis knows more about what's going on in Appalachia than we do. Barely illuminated by the stars above, Monaga Mine was just a dark smudge against the background of the mountain. The faint lights of Team Cryptid as they continued their monitoring barely pierced the darkness outside the trailer. Emily had finally succumbed to both her frustration and exhaustion, giving up for the night on trying to isolate the strange signals while Douglas was slumped over, having fallen asleep while reading a comic book. Corporal Nash looked at his Pip-Boy. He was scheduled for relief in an hour. Another goddamn hour standing in front of a fucking hole in the ground. Oh well, he thought. He had time for a quick smoke. 
Inside the trailer, Emily had left her terminal on, recording data so she could do more analysis in the morning. If she had been in front of it, instead of asleep in the next room, she would have seen the signals appear again, more numerous this time, like a group of small tremors swirling around something much larger and much more distinct. Setting down his rifle, Nash reached into his pouch and pulled out a cigarette. He flicked the lighter and took a long drag, blowing smoke into the Appalachian night. The signals continued to swarm, with a small group of them breaking off from the main group. From the lines on the screen, they were ascending, moving towards the surface. Nash dropped the burnout cigarette at his feet and crushed it under his boot. He was reaching for a second when he heard something. What the hell is that? The corporal thought he heard scurrying, like rats in the walls. He turned towards the dark hole and took a step forward. It would be the last thing that he would ever do. Would you please hold still? Just a few more stitches, I swear. Darling, I appreciate everything. But this is damn uncomfy, let me tell you. You should see what I have to do with antlers. Though, she doesn't have a tail. So I noticed. Why am I so different? Horns is one thing, but the tail and my fingers? I done carved my name in that tree outside, and I didn't have to use my knife. That was quite a trick, too. I mean, your hands look mostly normal. Except for those long fingernails. And they are pretty sharp. Just another extra, I guess. You keep saying that. Extras. How about you start talking instead of stitching? <laughs> You're lucky I can do both. So hold still, because I don't want to poke you again, okay? Fine. Much better. Be done in just a sec. Thing I learned how to sew in the vault. Never knew how handy it would be. Cherry, darling. Alright, alright. I told you about the mutagen serums. That's what made antlers. Antlers. They're messing with a bunch of different ones, creating all kinds of hybrid creatures. There are a lot of things that you'll find run around Appalachia that come from those labs. Either got loose, or they just decided to stick them on people for fun. Lack Big Ship? Exactly. He's not alone either. We found more of them. They aren't like Shep, for the most part. Mostly feral, very dangerous. Which is why we don't mess with them. Shep, like antlers, is something special. When antlers escaped, she managed to grab a box of mutagen samples. The same kind they were using on her. So, why don't I got antlers too? And why this other stuff? It was a mixed batch. Lots of different samples they were experimenting. A while back, I ran some tests. I'm not a scientist. Well, at least not a real one. But I'm pretty damn smart. Got straight A's in molecular biology back in the vault. Figured out these mutagens manipulate the DNA. It was healing like you wouldn't believe. Well, I guess you would believe. Because you're alive at all. Very much alive. And still damn uncomfy. You done yet, darling? Almost. But the serums can do other things, too. And some of them are more stable than the others. The people who created them combine DNA from all kinds of different animals. And depending on the type they use, well, you get different mutations. So antlers got antlers. Brad's stag DNA. Plus you can jump really high, too. Not sure where that came from. But you've seen that, haven't you? Flying through the trees, yeah. Like one of those old, whatchamacallit, acrobats, right? Exactly. Don't know if it messed with her voice, though. Still haven't quite figured that out why she can't talk, but she communicates just fine without it. So, 
What about me? That's where it gets complicated. See those tests I did? Some of them didn't turn out so good. They healed, but the other mutations? They were bad. Really bad. And you thought it was a good idea to stick me with them? Ouch! I told you to stand still. And you were dying, Red. That you didn't kick the bucket on the way here from the mire was a minor miracle. And I tried to tell Antlers it was a bad idea. That you were dead already. But she can be really, really stubborn. And if I'd gone bad? Antlers would have to put you down. I'm sorry, Red. It isn't pretty. That's the truth. Well, fuck me. Darling, at least y'all are honest. We took a chance. That's all. From the looks of it, that particular mutagen had a bunch of different DNA samples in it. Your tail? That'd be deer. The horns in your fingers? Maybe Deathclaw or Sheepsquatch. That's darn near terrifying. Do you know for sure? It's the best I can figure. It was touch and go there for our first few hours. You healed up just fine, but when those horns sprouted, got pretty nervous. But you didn't try to eat us, so that was a good sign. Are you sure I ain't dreaming, darling? Or maybe we're both crazy. Neither. I think. Alright, that's the last stitch. How did those pants feel now? Huh. Not so bad. Don't feel like I'm poking myself anymore, so I guess that's good. Very good. Now, I found you a cloak and a hood. Here you go. Try these on. I think maybe gloves, too? Now I'll feel all mysterious like. I think I have a few more sets of clothes I can work on for you, now that I know your measurements. If you're still planning on heading out, you'll need them. Damn straight I am. That fucker Vinny set me up. I was never supposed to collect those caps. And if I didn't die up in the mire, he was probably planning on separating my head from my shoulders with that motherfucking collar of his. It wasn't his. What do you all mean, it wasn't his? Not his collar. That's where things get weird again, Red. See, I took the same collar off Antlers when I found her. I mean, not the same one, but one just like it. Had the same logo on everything. I didn't see no logo, darling. It was on the inside, so you couldn't have seen it. But it was exactly the same. You mean to tell me? People are after Antlers are the same ones who sent you off to die in the mire. You've got to be fucking kidding me. The world works in mysterious ways, Red. Everything's connected. Well, I'll be dipped in shit. Guess that means I got more people on my list than just dear old Vinny. You have no idea just how dangerous these people are, Red. It might just be better that you disappear. Darling, I'm done running. Vinny, the Reavers, and anyone else that gets in my way, they'll all get to see the real Red now. I aim to collect what is mine, and there ain't hell or high water that's gonna stop me. Just my luck. I get stuck with another stubborn as hell cryptid. Well, I guess you'll be needing this then. Is that old Percy? You named your rifle? I thought I'd lost it for good. You can thank Antlers again. She went back and found it. Spent a whole day cleaning all the mud out of it, too. Darling, you have no idea. I ain't got much left of who I was, and this means the world to me. Like I said, you're gonna need it. There's a whole bunch of super mutants between you and Big Ben. Chances of you making it all the way through that? Well, I don't even want to guess the odds. Plenty of things in Appalachia been trying to kill me since the day I set foot here. One way or the other, I'm getting what I'm owed. Fair is fair and business is business. And I aim to misbehave. 
Do you have a plan? Like, at all? It weren't all monsters and raiders on my walkabout there, darling. Met some mighty fine folk at a place called Sugar Grove. Figured they might still be there, and maybe, just maybe they can help. That's still pretty far away. Darling, gotta start somewhere. And I can't thank you enough for saving my life. Still getting used to these extras. But as long as I ain't dead, I figure I came out ahead. If you're dead set on this, I can't let you go alone. You want to come with me? Antlers wouldn't let you go by yourself, and I can't just leave her anyway. Pitch you as far as this sugar grow, whatever that is. Need to replenish my cams anyway. And the fresh air and exercise will do me good. And who's going to mend your clothes if something happens? You are a pretty particular woman there, darling. You sure? It certainly ain't safe. Eh, survived worse. I ain't no spring chicken, Red. I know how to shoot straight, and hell, I know more about the plants and animals out there than just about anybody else. Ain't gonna say no to more help. I still owe ya. Probably more than I could ever repay, but, like my pa always said, we pay our debts. Then it's settled. Actually, Antlers is packing for the last day or so. She's been what now? <laughs> antlers is? Well, Antlers. Come on, I'll cook us some dinner and we can head out in the morning. Tom and Vinny, just you wait. Time to settle the score. Thank you again, members, for joining us here on The Modus Files. If you've enjoyed this content, please subscribe. And better yet, please leave a review to help others find our little enclave. You can also follow us on our various social media accounts, including Twitter, Instagram, and Blue Sky, at Modus Files, or at Modus Files Podcast, for more information about our story, Fallout 76 content, and random musings on the Enclave. I'd also like to thank our cast, Pandora Beatrix as Colonel Valeria Faustina, Lucy Middleton as Major Lilith and Amanda, XO1 King as Major Andrew Stein, Maria Cheshire as Lieutenant Cindy Connors, Chrissy Williams as Trader Red and Researcher Emily, Jessica Starr as Commander Sophia Daguerre, Austin Rogers as Lieutenant Jones, Aaron Foster as Captain Thomas, Eric Gold as Private Douglas and Grey Commander, Virtual Plays as Scribe Odessa Valdez and Dr. Trillian, Aaron McNamara as Dr. Naomi Harefield, Henry McNamara as Andy, Chris Smith from One Wall Comedy as Graham, Sergeant Blaine, Knight Shin, and Private Nash, Tim Young as Sullivan, Mark Hosworth as Dr. Blackburn and Bitter, Josh Smith as Captain Skinner, Kirsten Harrison as Paladin Romani and Director Evelyn Hornwright, Casual in a Corset as Corporal Samantha, Cherry Pixel as Cherry, Daniel Hawthorne as Lieutenant Shadow, Tom Houston as The Scavenger, and Brad Williams as Colonel Reynolds and The Voice of Modus. As our third season continues, we'd like to give a huge shout-out to our fellow creators, The Chad Podcast, Tapes from the Wastes, Once Upon a Wasteland, and the host of artists who continue to provide us with the wonderful artwork you can find on our website. A very special thank you to Nobody, our very first commissioned artist who is working on updated portraits of our main cast. Stay tuned for our next episode, Shadow Games. Lastly, thank you to all of our subscribers and supporters. God bless the Enclave, and God bless America. Members, we look forward to your next visit to our little Enclave. <laughs>